This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Great to be together with me where I, your rabbi, remain solemnly dedicated to revealing how the world really works. And one of the observations that any student of how the world really works is well aware is that uh, things began to fall apart in about 1960. Oh, there were signs of it already in the years leading up to 1960 and in the early few years of the 60s there were still signs that things maybe would be okay but uh, if one tries to uh, mark a point on the calendar where America stopped being the country it was and began a slow slide down the slope of secularism as it began an inexorable move away from greatness and towards decadence, depravity, and perhaps oblivion. I think most observers would probably say, yeah, 1960 is probably the milestone. Now, this right here is the 20th of uh, our podcasts here on The Blaze. And if you were to go back to number four, uh, you would find a show where uh, we spoke about why it was the 60s, what really was going on there. Why do I say 1960 was the milestone? So if you haven't heard that, by all means, uh, pop back to uh, show number four and... uh, you will be able to catch up on that. But essentially, that's kind of what it is. Now, I've spoken in the past with you on why it is that in 1960, we tended to see a slide down the slope of sexual immorality, where uh, concupiscence became the order of the day and, uh, and vulgarity became funny. We've spoken about that. That was one of the things you could see in 1960. Uh, Another thing you could see in 1960 was uh, the beginning of the um, uh, decline of the economy. Things started going, oh, yes, of course, we had a big boom in 2000 and we had a boom before. I mean, yes, there have been booms, but taken in the overall, take a look and see, that was the beginning of the decline. I've spoken about how it is when uh, you examine the proportion of Americans that work for government. That's that's one indicator of the condition. Uh, That was when it began its swift climb. When you took a look at uh, when foreigners without any 
understanding of or commitment to American culture began entering the country in large numbers? Yeah, again, round about 1960. But uh, the one thing we have not yet touched on at all is something else that happened in about 1960, and that is that we lost our ability to fight and win wars. Well, what do I mean by that? Why don't we listen to the words of General George Patton delivered to his troops in England on June the 5th, 1944. That was the night before the Allied invasion of Normandy. Uh, that was, it was called Overlord, and uh, it was one of, perhaps one of the most heroic moments of the American fighting forces. Uh, I don't know, I very much doubt if an audio recording exists of General Patton speaking um, on that occasion, I doubt it, but uh, the text of it is, is very much available. So uh, why don't I read you just a little bit of what it sounded like. I wish I could sound like he did. I uh, wish I could even say all the words he said, <laughs> but I'm afraid I'm not going to do that. Uh, uh, but here it is, at least in the words. <clears throat> all right, you ready? Men, all the stuff you hear about America not wanting to fight, wanting to stay out of the war, is a lot of bleep. Americans love to fight. All real Americans love the sting and clash of battle. When you were kids, you all admired the champion marble shooter, the fastest runner, the big league ball players, and the toughest boxers. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. The very thought of losing is hateful to Americans. Battle is the most significant competition in which a man can indulge. It brings out all that is best, and it removes all that is base. You are not all going to die. Only 2% of you right here today would be killed in a major battle. Every man is scared in his first action. If he says he's not, he's a bleep liar. But the real hero is the man who fights even though he's scared. Some men will get over their fright in a minute under fire. Some take an hour, and for some it takes days. But the real man never lets his fear of death overpower his honor, his sense of duty to his country, and his innate manhood. All through your army career, you men have bleeped about what you call this bleep bleep drilling. That is all for a purpose, to ensure instant obedience to orders and to create a constant alertness. This must be bred into every soldier. I don't give a bleep for a man who is not always on his toes. But the drilling has made veterans of all, you men. You are ready. A man has to be alert all the time if he expects to keep on breathing. If not, some German bleep will sneak up behind him and beat him to death with a sock full of bleep. There are 400 neatly marked graves in Sicily. 
all because one man went to sleep on the job. But they are German graves because we caught the bleep asleep before his officer did. An army is a team. It lives, eats, sleeps, and fights as a team. This individual hero stuff is bleep. The bilious bleeps who write that stuff for the Saturday Evening Post don't know any more about real battle than they do about bleeping. And we have the best team. We have the finest food and equipment, the best spirit, and the best men in the world. Why? By God, I actually pity those poor bastards we're going up against. All the real heroes are not storybook combat fighters. Every single man in the army plays a vital role, so don't ever let up. Don't ever think that your job is unimportant. What if every truck driver decided that he didn't like the wine of the shells and turned yellow and jumped headlong into a ditch? That cowardly bleep could say to himself, Hell, they won't miss me, just one man in thousands. What if every man said that? Where in the bleep would he be, would we be then? No, thank God Americans don't say that. Every man does his job. And he goes on uh, more about this. He says, each man must think not only of himself, but think of his buddy fighting alongside him. We don't want yellow cowards in the army. They should be killed off like flies. If not, they will go back home after the war, bleeping cowards and breed more cowards. The brave men will breed more brave men. Kill off the bleeping cowards, and we'll have a nation of brave men. And uh, he carries on, tells a few anecdotes, and um, he says, uh, uh, um, Then there's one thing you men will be able to say when this war is over and you get back home. Thirty years from now, when you're sitting by your fireside with your grandson on your knee, and he asks, what did you do in the Great World War II? You won't have to cough and say, well, your granddaddy shoveled bleep in Louisiana. No, sir. You can look him straight in the eye and say, son, your granddaddy rode with a great third army and a son of a bleeping bitch named George Patton. All right, you sons of bleeps. You know how I feel. I'll be proud to lead you wonderful guys in battle anytime, anywhere. That's all. That's what George Patton said on the 5th of June, 1944. Let me just uh, read again just a couple of sentences that are very much to the point of what we're talking about today. Americans play to win all the time. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. Folks, let's take a look at that just a little bit. 1775 to 1785, the American War of Independence. We won. 1785 to 1793, the Northwest Indian Wars. We won. 1801 to 1805, the First Barbary War. We won. 1812 to 1815, the War of 1812 against the Tecumseh Confederacy. We won. 1815, the Second Barbary War. We won. 1817 to 1818, 
the first Seminole War. We won. 1820 to 1875, the Texas Indian Wars. Remember, the, against the Comanches. We won. 1827, the Winnebago War against the Ho-Chings. We won. 1832, the Black Hawk War. We won. 1835 to 1842, the Second Seminole War. We won. You are surely seeing a pattern, right? 1846 to 1848, the Mexican-American War. We won. 1855 to 1858, the Third Seminole War. <laughs> Those guys kept on coming back for more. We won again. 1856 to 1859, the three-year opium wars in China, the Qing Dynasty lost. We won. 1857 to 1858, the Utah War. We won. 1861 to 1865, the Civil War, the tragic war between the states. And it's hard to say, isn't it? I, I shrink at saying we won. The United States of America did win, I guess. But let's move on. 1871. There was actually a Korean War back then against the Joseon dynasty. Needless to say, we won. 1876. Do you remember the Great Sioux War? Brave brave antagonists, but we won. 1877, the Nez Perce War, we won. 1878 to 1879, the Cheyenne Wars, we won. 1898, yes, the Spanish-American War, we won. 1899 to 1902, the Philippines-American War, we won. In 1912 to 1924, it was a long sequence of weird wars. Collectively, they call it the Banana Wars. Haiti, the Honduras, Cuba, the Dominican Republic. I mean, it was, we were again, everybody started up. We won constantly, all the time, everywhere. Uh, we got into the First World War in 1817, and we fought it until 1818 when we, yes, that's right, we won. And then we come to 1941, Pearl Harbor. We joined World War II until 1945, when we won again, just as George Patton said. Yes, we won. 1950 to 1953, the Korean War. Um, you know, basically, we won. We, we tossed them, we tossed the communists out of South Korea. We pushed them back, not only to the 38th parallel, but we got South Korea an extra 1,500 square miles of territory. Um, American force, it's, it's kind of not been officially ended yet, but okay, I mean, you could say a draw, I suppose, but um, at any rate, even if you say a draw, well, we're sort of kind of getting towards the end, you see. Because when we come back in just a moment, um, you're going to see that things change dramatically as I move on to explore all the wars of the United States of America post-1960.
George Patton would be shocked, and so will you. Your radio rabbi here, back in just a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Continuing on with the uh, second segment of this episode. This is the 20th episode of this series of podcasts on The Blaze. And I thank you so much for being part of it and uh, for downloading or for listening, however you listen. I appreciate that very much because uh, I'm stimulated uh, to deliver my very best on these podcasts strictly because I know you there. And uh, as I constantly, obsessively, some might say, watch the download numbers climb during the course of the week and then in the weeks after each podcast is posted, that spurs me, it inspires me, it encourages me, it motivates me. Well, in uh, June the 5th, 1944, just before the Allied forces hurled themselves onto the beaches of Normandy and began to close in on the Third Reich, George Patton told his men that Americans win. He told his people, that's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. The very thought of losing is hateful to Americans. Well, this is sad. Uh, this, This is difficult for me to do Uh, Without a lump in my throat, I have to tell you. But here we go. 1961, the invasion of Cuba. It was supposed to be a glorious time. We were going to put things right for that sad island nation. Do you remember the name Bay of Pigs? That was 1961. An ignominious defeat for us. 1965 to 1973, our involvement in the Vietnam War. And it ended, my friends, we didn't win, we lost. It was a defeat. We fled with our tails between our legs. Let's tell the truth. Those shameful shots of the the, uh, helicopters desperately taking off from the roof of the embassy in such a hurry that we left behind the bodies of the last two soldiers to be killed in the Vietnam War. We lost. The Gulf War, 1990-1991, throwing Saddam Hussein out of uh, Kuwait, that's a loss as well because we stopped prematurely and uh, did not deal with Saddam Hussein, who continued as a troublemaker in his country and elsewhere. 
So eager were we to end the war that we ended it prematurely. Let's face it, that was a defeat. 2001 to 2014, the Afghan war, the war of Afghanistan, tremendous loss of American money and blood, tremendous. And for that we got what? And again, a premature departure. 2003 to 2011, the war in Iraq, the full total amount of American money that was squandered on that, I don't know if that'll ever be known. But airplane loads of cash would land regularly in Iraq, American money to rebuild an enemy we hadn't yet defeated, to pay off shaky allies who never really were with us. And in the end, what did we get for it? Iraq is still the same internecine bloody mess it's always been. I'm afraid yet another defeat. Look, paint, paint these things any way you like. Uh, you know, I guess if, if I was... Uh, a governmental spokesman, I'd probably find a way to spin it and to speak about the glorious Gulf War and the glorious Afghanistan War and the glorious Iraq War. But it's all what General George Patton would call bleep, complete meaningless. These, my friends, were defeats for America. Think of how we left Japan after World War II. Think of how we left Germany after World War II. And then take a look at Iraq and Afghanistan. Or for that matter, we've been fighting in northwest Pakistan since 2004. What's that yielded? And so it continues. Uh, you might say that America is at war, with uh, first with Al-Qaeda, now with ISIS. Really? Really? And do you think we're headed for a glorious victory? That's the problem, my friends. That's what I want to explain. We've spoken about how America's economic vitality declined in 1960. We've spoken about how its cultural vitality declined, its morality declined. Uh, how about its educational standards? Do you remember when... America used to score highest around the world, or if not highest, in the top three in math, in science, in biology, where our high school students scored the highest or close to the highest of the entire world. Do you remember that? That changed again in 1960. We began to slide down until we now perform, literally, and we now perform in science, in, in math, in uh, biology, in mathematics, we now score somewhere near Bulgaria. We're way down, way down. And uh, many educators say, but we score very high on self-esteem. That is true. That is true. When uh, 
when we were met, there was a time where self-esteem was this extremely popular metric and educators were measuring it. And it's true, we even as our scores were sliding down to the very bottom of the world standard, and that's true to this day on average, American high schoolers uh, graduate with kind of the lowest ability around the world. And uh, educators say, well, we score very high near the top in self-esteem. That's absolutely true. And here's another demographic in America that scores in the highest percentile of self-esteem in the country, uh, convicted murderers. That's right. When you come to think of it, you've got to have pretty high self-esteem to kill people who annoy you. That's right. And so our high schoolers, you might say, score the very bottom. They really are the dunces of the academic world. But here's the good news. They feel really good about it. Well, that's where it's at. That's really where we're up to. And so all of this began around about 1960. The quality of our education began to plummet. And now on this, uh, this show, we're talking about how it is that our military prowess began to plummet. There it is from 1776 all the way up to 1950. It's like we, we just didn't lose a war. We won every single military encounter we embarked upon. Comes 1960, and we lose one after another. One after another. Cuba, Vietnam, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Northwest Pakistan, ISIS, one after the other. It's as if we've totally lost our ability to wage war. How can this be explained? And... Uh, the answer is, the answer is it really, really can be explained. It can be explained very well indeed. And my hope is to explain it as we move on with this show. Whether I will have succeeded in explaining it very well indeed, I don't know yet. Only you will be able to judge that. But we're certainly going to try. We're certainly going to do our best. And uh, one of the things that I'm going to be speaking about is a Hebrew word. Now, a Hebrew word, you might say, well, you know, what on earth has that got to do with, with us or, or with anything we're discussing? And the answer is that um, the, the, the Hebrew words really do have value, and they really are things that you'd want to know something about. You know, uh, the second governor of the Plymouth Colony was a man called William Bradford. Uh, he came over on the Mayflower, and he wrote this extraordinary history of the Plymouth Plantation, uh, published in 1651. And uh, in the very beginning, he, he writes the first 20 pages, and I've got a Xerox of the manuscript in his own handwriting, it's in Hebrew. He's writing in Hebrew. Not, not, he's writing Hebrew words and, and sentences. And then he explains why, and this is what he writes. Though I am grown aged, yet I have a longing desire to see with my own eyes something of that most ancient language and holy tongue 
in which the law and oracles of God were written, and in which God and angels spoke to the holy patriarchs of old time, and what names were given to things at the creation. And so William Bradford realized that there is real value in understanding just a little bit of Hebrew, and uh, I'd like to be able to impart some of that value to you as well. And uh, what I'm going to be teaching you from is from a book of mine um, called Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. That's right, Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. And uh, this is a book that you can have a look at, read about more, take a careful uh, scrutiny of on my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Right? rabbidaniellappin.com. Go to the store and, uh, and look for Buried Treasure, Life Lessons of the Lord's Language. You'll be able to read more about it there. In that book, there, basically what, what I do is I take uh, oh, more than 20, more than 25 very, very important Hebrew words and I show you how in the Lord's language, words disclose crucial information that we need to live successful lives. And uh, one of those words that we're going to take a look at is the Hebrew word for life. Now, you may, I don't know if you ever saw that, uh, that movie Fiddler on the Roof, or you might have seen it as a Broadway play, Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, there's a point at which uh, all the uh, villagers in the little uh, shtetl, the little town in Europe, um, they get together, they have a drink, and they hold up their cups, and they sing out, L'chaim, to life. And then they all burst into song, to life, to life, to life. And uh, that's the Hebrew word, L'chaim. The word, the sound L means two, and then the word Chaim means life. Now, here's the interesting thing, and, uh, and I can tell you this about Hebrew very quickly. It'll take me 30 seconds to tell you. Uh, you'll, in 30 seconds, you'll get it, and from then onwards, you're always going to be able to recognize most Hebrew plural words, and that is that uh, plural words in Hebrew, and particularly if they're masculine, plural masculine words in Hebrew end with the sound im, as if it was I-M. Okay, so uh, um, uh, kadur is a ball, kadurim is lots of balls. On that basis, the word for being alive, for living, is chai. But the word for life, in other words, I, I, I'm alive, I have a life, is chayim. It's a plural. And so what this is telling us is something very remarkable. This is only one of about oh, 27 or 28 words that I work on in this book, Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. And I'd like you to take a look at it at rabbidaniellappin.com. It's a great website. Yeah, you know what? Honesty compels me to confess. It's not such a great website, but there's a lot of good stuff. It's like, it's like me saying, yeah, you know, I... 
I'm very good looking. Nah, you know what? Even with a robust ego, I can't persuade myself of that. But I am interesting. So that's kind of like the website as well. More interesting than good looking. And at RabbiDanielLappin.com, go to the store, look for Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. And uh, we're going to be taking a close look at one. I'm going to tell you in just a moment when we come back, why on earth would the Hebrew word for life be a plural? Think about that for just a moment. I'll be right back. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. We are failing. We do not have a plan in Syria, which is hard to believe, seeing how President Obama has said that Assad is a good guy, then a bad guy, then a good guy, then a bad guy, and we good or bad guy at this point, Skip. Is he a good guy or bad guy I, today? I think a know? bad guy as of today. Have, these are my frustrations, the people who don't get it. Obama, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton. The morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 20, and we're moving right along with segment three. I'm your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And one of the things that never changes is that if you look at reality with only one eye, with only one lens, you end up with a distorted image. For instance, you know, if, um, if you try and bring a fourth finger of each hand together with one of your eyes shut, it's a little harder than if both your eyes are open, because that's because with both eyes, you have a better sense of depth perception. You have three-dimensional vision. But even so, you can still manage to do it because of the feedback mechanism in your arms. Uh, your mind has a pretty good idea of where each finger is, and so although you're being misled by your eyes, uh, your, uh, your brain will still bring the fingers together. But now, have somebody else put out a finger and then from about three feet away, put your finger in position, and then try and meet his finger point to point. Now, using only one eye, it becomes very difficult. Uh, why are binoculars better than a telescope? Well, again, only because you get some degree of depth perception. You get a better picture. Uh, why, why do we uh, find it difficult to locate a sound with one of our ears blocked, same thing. Because two sources of information, two perceptions, two pictures um, provide a full set of data. And so similarly, when people have a wrong understanding of another area in which there are two aspects to reality, and people, very often, some people think there's only one. They end up with a distorted picture. In this case, however, 
the consequences are ever so much more serious than simply not allowing or not having one of your fingers meet the other. And what I'm talking about is the fact that uh, we have two lives. We live in a dual reality. We live in a reality of a physical life and a spiritual life. Now, I do want to just make sure that uh, you know, when I use the term spiritual life here, uh, I'm not using spiritual in any sense as synonymous with good or virtuous or holy. Not at all. Spiritual simply means something which cannot be measured in a laboratory. It is not a physical quantity. And laboratories are very good at measuring things that are physical. For instance, a laboratory is just fine, a laboratory is just fine uh, for trying to uh, measure how loud some sound is. Um, you can even put an oscilloscope or a spectrum analyzer into the lab and you can get something of a picture. You can say, well, the sound uh, has a lot of bass noise to it, uh, just a little bit of treble, um, and uh, there seems to be a percussive beat, uh, some kind of regularity to it. But you simply have no way of knowing from any instrument on the planet whether the sound is a beautiful symphony or a magnificent song being played by a band, or whether it is the sound of stones rolling down a roof, a tin roof. You cannot do that. There is no instrument that can tell you whether the sound is noise or music. There is no instrument that can compose music that makes men march off to war or makes people tap their feet and want to dance or make pe makes people feel indescribably sad. No, that's the genius of a human composer. That's the spiritual beauty of, of music. It's, it, sound is a physical quantity. Music is spiritual. And the only place to determine whether a particular sound is just noise or whether it's music is in the space between the two ears in a human head. That's the only place we can tell. And so uh, we, we human beings have needs that are spiritual just as we have needs that are physical. The physical ones are obvious, of course, but uh, we have spiritual ones as well. We, uh, we need association with other people. We need the love and esteem of other people. Uh, when we hire people to, to work with us in our enterprises, we need people who have qualities of, uh, of loyalty and of resilience and of determination. Uh, we need people who, um, who are, uh, are able to, uh, to overcome adversity. All of the, we need people who have an ability to communicate effectively. These are all spiritual attributes, not physical. A person's ability to make noise with his mouth, that's physical. Even a, 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 real, a newborn baby can do it. But to communicate abstract ideas, which is, by the way, what selling is, to be an effective sales professional, this is all spiritual. And so the, uh, the person who's living effectively is the person 
who understands both the spiritual and the physical. I explained a little earlier that in my book, Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language, I covered a number of words that reveal certain realities about life that are embedded within the Hebrew structure of those words. And, and this book obviously is uh, for people who, who do not know any Hebrew, but are nonetheless interested in how this uh, mysterious and uh, majestic language has the unique capacity to convey meaning within the words. And a perfect example of this, as I showed in the last segment, is the word for life. You know, I, I live my life. What's, what's the Hebrew word for life? The word is chayim, which is a plural word. This means that I have two lives, and you have two lives. What are the two lives I have? A spiritual life and a physical life. And we have to understand that both of them are very important. There are people who think there's only a physical life and no spiritual life, and they make one set of mistakes. And then there are other people who, not as many, but there are some people who think only of their spiritual life and uh, disdain a physical life, and they make uh, other sets of mistakes. People who think that there is only a physical life um, disregard potential damage to their soul. Uh, these are people who... Uh, are capable of uh, lying, cheating, and stealing because they feel if they don't get caught, no harm is done. Uh, there are people who um, believe that, uh, look, there are men who feel uh, perfectly comfortable uh, seducing women at, uh, at, at will, and, um, and they, they tell themselves, well, it was mutually agreed upon, it was um, with mutual consent, so no harm done, and there is no thought whatsoever at all to the possibility that uh, there is harm being done uh, to both parties. These are all uh, spiritual damages and, uh, and, and spiritual problems, which if one utterly ignores the existence of the reality of spirituality, then one doesn't notice those. Uh, people who believe only a spiritual reality are people who very often embrace poverty as a mark of virtue. Uh, they may be people who, uh, who regard their bodies as, as almost inconvenient apparatus that, that is somehow attached to them. And, uh, you know, people who may not perhaps look after those bodies that have been entrusted to them by their creator. Uh, and, and many, many other mistakes. I don't want to, to dwell on this extensively because uh, successful living requires that we understand we have spiritual and physical. Now, I've, I've explained in the past that one of the things that happens, and perhaps one of the most important things that uh, really began to happen and into which we transitioned, and I call it 1960, but again, obviously, uh, there were subtle signs of it beforehand already, and, uh, and after it, there were still uh, subtle and diminishing indications that maybe things were still okay, but, uh, but if, you, if you graph the disturbances in American society, uh, it'll peak at about 1960. And what is the disturbance I'm speaking about? Uh, it is the uh, beginning of a serious secularization of America. Now, one of the things that happens when you secu secularize a person or a culture is the obliteration of spiritual sensitivity. 
In other words, the feeling is if that you cannot see it or touch it, it doesn't exist. In other words, if it doesn't, or if it doesn't uh, allow itself to be measured in a laboratory, it doesn't exist. And uh, damages then begin to uh, ensue in that society. So just to give you an example, um, a child, having a child, what is the material impact of having a child? Oh, everyone will tell you. It costs 300000 or 280000 or $340,000 to raise a child from birth uh, through college. And anything else? Well, yes, uh, you need to, to get a bigger house. And uh, anything else? Well, yes, you can't uh, go on vacations when you want to because your, your children are at school. So what you're telling me basically is that having a child uh, ruins my life. Well, yes, and to add insult to injury, uh, when your child is in his 30 or her 30s or 40s, he or she is going to uh, spend some of the money you left them on therapists complaining about how you ruined their lives. Well, that doesn't make any sense. From what you're telling me, it seems as if children ruin your life, that parents have their lives ruined by children. Well, you know, I'm just giving you the material facts. So tell me, uh, why do people have children? Well, uh, the more materialistic the worldview is or can, when I say materialistic, by the way, that sometimes is misunderstood as a term, you know, that people who like money, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm using the term very explicitly as it's meant to be used in, in English, and that is uh, people whose worldview is predominantly physical or material, um, they are not having children. That's absolutely right. Their fertility rate is declining uh, precipitously. And why shouldn't it? Because their perspective on having children is, uh, is, is one of um, a dismay and, and loss. So where are the benefits of having children? Well, they're spiritual, of course. Uh, they are the joy of being able to re-examine life through the eyes of some somebody newly arrived. Uh, it's the it's the laughter and giggle of a child. It's the way a child looks at you. Uh, above all, it's being needed by a child. It's it's being able to give, having somebody upon whom to lavish the kind of love that only a parent can lavish on a child. Now, everything I've said is is all spiritual. And if you have a spiritual eye, well, then you'd understand it. And guess what? People who've retained a spiritual perspective on life are having children. They are retaining fertility and they are having families. But uh, as long as you are deprived, as long as you deprive yourself of a spiritual perspective and retain nothing but a physical one, uh, there are no reasons for having children. And sure enough, people are not. I'm hoping this helps you understand a little bit of the demographics that uh, afflict the United States of America at the present time. And by the way, th this phenomenon, very visible in Europe as well. Uh, Muslims having kids? Sure, of course. Because for all its wrongness, it's, um, it's, it's a belief system that, that speaks of the spiritual. And so whether it's, it's true or not is not the issue here. What's the issue is that, um, that there is an awareness that is taught in Islam of a spiritual reality, obviously. And so naturally, Muslims go ahead and have children. Um, that's, it's so simple. It's so absolutely clear. So not surprisingly, 
when uh, statistics are given about fertility in the United States of America, you know, people go, oh, well, you know, we have a, a, a replacement or a fertility rate of uh, 2.8 children per couple, and I'm not sure that is the figure right now, by the way. But um, the, the point is that it's a mistake to view the United States of America or Europe as a homogenous entity. Fact is that there are communities of faith in America where the figures are very healthy. Uh, there are communities of materialistic secularism where the uh, fertility figures are, uh, are, are fatal, literally fatal. The same exact thing is true of, of Europe as well. Uh, let's move on and uh, take a look at how this impacts America's ability to make and win wars. Uh, we'll tackle that coming right back. So uh, in just a moment, your rabbi will return. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. He goes downstairs and dishes out ice cream. Two bowls. And I already told him, I don't want any. No, you didn't tell me until after yes, I dished did. it out. No, you he didn't. Said, I don't want any. He proceeds I had already dished bowls. it out. He brings up two bowls. I don't want any. I told you that. I'm sick oh. over this game. Please I tell can't me. eat ice cream. Please he ate a bowl. <laughs> <laughs> <He> ate <laughs> a bowl. Exactly. What am I supposed to do? Let it melt? Pat and Stu. Weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you so much for being with me, your rabbi. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. My website, you know already, right? RabbiDanielLappin.com. And uh, that's where you're able to take a look at uh, a book called Buried Treasure, Life Lessons of the Lord's Language. And one of the words that we analyze in that book is the Hebrew word for life. Uh, you may have heard the phrase, as I mentioned earlier, lechayim, to life. It's the uh, a traditional toast um, in Jewish circles. That's lechayim, that's life. And the word is a plural word, stressing that it's vitally important for successful living to be aware that you have two lives. You have a spiritual life and a physical life. Now, one of the things we covered in the last segment was that uh, if you only retain a physical eye on reality, uh, in other words, if you are a classical materialist, meaning that only things that are material, non-spiritual, only material things exist, well, the reason to have children uh, begins to uh, fade away. And so, sure enough, we, we find that as secularism began to uh, uh, steamroller its way across the American landscape, again, round about 1960, round about the time that uh, Judeo-Christian biblical values were uh, removed from the village square, round about 1960, uh, it became unfashionable to quote the Bible. It became unfashionable. Uh, to say, you know, speaking as a committed Christian, speaking as a serious Christian, speaking as an Orthodox Jew, uh, it just became a lot less fashionable. It wasn't cool anymore. And so as religion, Judeo-Christian faith, was moved uh, off center stage, uh, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, right? So what happens? Secularism as a doctrine comes creeping in. 
And, uh, and so we, we've seen, of course, all of the things that followed on. Uh, drop in fertility was one. But what we're looking at now is why is it that that point identifies the stage at which America started losing wars? We were not a nation accustomed to losing wars. We weren't. Uh, it, it seemed the natural order of our destiny that we went to war, we won. Uh, we imposed a settlement on the nations we defeated, and this happened again and again, and I gave you a list uh, earlier on in the show. And so now uh, we're trying to see some of the other factors by which secularism ruins our ability to make and win war. Look, uh, this, is, um, this is provocative stuff, I know. Um, it's, it's not terribly popular, what I'm talking about. Uh, it's, it's hardly known, I'll tell you the truth, hardly known. And uh, I want to warn you that if you go ahead and uh, promote this and you speak about it, um, initially people are going to think you're crazy. And, uh, and by the way, use the podcast, okay? If you are engaged with somebody, use the podcast to, uh, you know, have them listen to it. First of all, uh, it's, it's the full presentation of the argument. Secondly, I am a highly trained debater. <laughs> well, uh, the point is that uh, I, I do a lot of this. It's, it's my work. It's what I do do. And, uh, and it is hard, and I'm sure you've had it already. It is hard for you to say over to somebody uh, something you may have heard me explain over the course of, who knows, you might have been listening for two hours. Now, most times, especially in a social context, you don't have two hours to make the point. And it's sometimes very frustrating because you know it's true, you know it's correct, and given the two or three minutes you might have to convey the essence of the point, uh, it's frustrating when the person you're talking to doesn't get it and, and very often won't get it. Okay, so... Be aware that uh, as I move into this next point, we're coming into an area that uh, you will get, you will see. And if somebody is willing to let you explain it to them as you're willing to let me explain it to you, they'll get it as well. But it's one of these things that is tough uh, to grab in what people have become accustomed to now because of television in a 30-second soundbite. This is not a 30-second soundbite. What am I talking about? Well, I'm explaining that secularism, the removal of faith, the resulting doctrine of materialism validates cowardice. Wow, what am I saying? What I'm saying is that once you have successfully expunged all spiritual sensitivity and all spiritual awareness from your heart and your soul and your mind, at that point, all that matters, all that now matters is your body. 
And if all that matters is your body, then running away from a conflict makes all the sense in the world. A willingness to die for what you believe in requires that you understand and accept the existence of a soul. And what you're saying is that I'd rather be a soul without a body than a body without a soul. But for those people who've rejected secular, re rejected the spiritual reality, all that's left is the body. And therefore, nothing is worth losing the body. You see, you get a little bit of this, and uh, it's something I've mentioned in the past. I've spoken about this, that uh, a question I enjoy asking people who have high school students as children um, is this. If you have to have one of these two things happen to you, which would you rather? The two things are that either the school calls to tell you that your child, you know, your 14-year-old or 15-year-old has been caught smoking cigarettes, or alternatively, the school calls to tell you that your teenager has been caught cheating in an exam. What would you rather? Now, this is a very interesting test because it gives us a little bit of an idea of whether the person to whom I'm posing the question thinks in terms of a spiritual reality or not. And I have to tell you that over the years I've been asking the question, the percentage of people who answer and say, I'd rather my school call to tell me my teenager was caught cheating, that has been going up. And in my, again, this is not a, a nationwide poll or anything, but it's just when I do speeches, I generally get together with people, I ask questions, but I would say now probably about 60 to 70% of the people I ask this question say they would much rather their children were caught cheating because smoking is so dangerous. Yeah, smoking is so dangerous to the body. Cheating without your reacting appropriately is dangerous to the soul. And so which is more important? They're both important, obviously. But I think when you're raising teenagers, you don't have to worry about their concern for their body. What you have to focus on at that age very much is the concern for the soul. Take that away. And the concern is only body. Well, perhaps now we can understand why there is so much obsessive preoccupation with physical safety. Kids have to wear helmets when they bike ride. And I understand. The last thing I want to see is children getting hurt. I understand that. All I want is some awareness that with the heavy focus on physical material well-being, something is also lost. What is lost? Well, on a national level, as more and more Americans, and what I'm saying applies to Western Europe as well, as more and more Americans uh, begin to become uh, obsessed with physical well-being and not spiritual well-being, cowardice becomes a totally acceptable course of action. It didn't used to be. And so, when wars were fought, not only soldiers, but everybody, the notion of being a coward, th this was true in England as well, the notion of not signing up to go and fight World War I, it was unthinkable, absolutely unthinkable. 
And this, by the way, is still true in Israel, where it's unthinkable for somebody not to be in the army. And, and the nation rightly looks down on people who find various exemptions to get out of serving in the Israeli army. Because cowardice is unacceptable when you have a spiritual reality. You know, the anti-war movement uh, was a big, big uh, thing that shaped America. And people who look back on that time are divided into two categories. Those who pat themselves on the back and puff their chests out and speak, oh, how we stopped the war. We Let me tell you something about the anti-war movement. I hadn't immigrated to America yet at that point, but um, I will tell you that I have evidence that the anti-war movement was spurred by cowardice, not by nobility. It was spurred by cowardice. You know how I know? Because when the draft ended, so did the anti-war movement, although the war went on for nearly another two years. That's right. The draft in America ended in 1973. The war movement, the war itself, went on till 75. There were still people dying there. But since the people who didn't want to be drafted and didn't want to go didn't have to anymore, the anti-war movement ended. I think the anti-war movement, not everybody, but I think a large part of the anti-war movement, and again, my apologies if you were part of that movement and you were a noble part and you truly, truly did care about it, but I would say the majority of people in the anti-war movement were cowards. That's what this was all about. They did not want to go to Vietnam. Now, when I speak about the, uh, the, uh, the collapse of courage and the spreading of, of cowardice as a natural and inevitable outcome of the removal of spiritual awareness from American culture, I am not speaking about soldiers, because soldiers continue to be what soldiers have always been. Trained soldiers are dedicated professionals, and, uh, and the, the level of cowardice, and I think the deep primal shame that the anti-war movement felt about itself is what forced them and motivated them to become so hostile and cruel and vindictive towards returning soldiers from Vietnam because they confronted people who had walked into the gates of hell and who'd retained discipline. And yes, I know the, the military went seriously downhill in terms of morale. I know there were fragging incidents. I know that drug-taking began rampant in, in the ranks. The, the military was at a big low at that point, no question about it. But at the same time, the hostility that was directed towards returning veterans can only be explained by a deep sense of moral shame and cowardice on the part of the anti-war protesters who felt that they had to validate themselves and they had to vindicate their stance by pointing fingers of ridicule and, uh, and hatred against returning veterans. Now, the, um, the, 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 the key thing to understand here, I think, is that, yes, when you strip Judeo-Christian faith, when you strip uh, spiritual significance out of people's lives by removing it from the culture, uh, it, uh, it has this incredibly serious cultural consequence of producing a culture of cowardice. And sure enough, 
that is exactly what happened. Not speaking so much about the soldiers themselves, because soldiers are professionals and they're dedicated to their craft. I'm speaking about um, civilian leadership at home. I'm speaking about politicians. I'm speaking about government. These are the people who become profoundly infected with the secular germ and uh, and they become uh, they become infected with cowardice that's exactly what happens but there is another even more serious aspect of what happens to a society as it becomes secularized it becomes materialistic it uh, utterly has lost its spiritual awareness all that matters in life are things you can touch and weigh and feel, measure. Nothing else matters. There is no spiritual reality. Well, what else happens? Well, I'll tell you because it'll help you understand why crime began to take off the way it did. It'll also help you understand much of what impacts the culture right now in the war on terror. Your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, Back with you in just a moment. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. 25 campaign headquarters that have to pay light bill or they get cut off. Local reporter finds out the light bill's cut off of your campaign headquarters. You're out of the race and you're a fool. As of now, Bobby Jindal is out of the race, but he's no fool. He's out of the race because he ran out of other people's money. Jeb Bush never will. It's very unnatural a process, isn't it? But it is what it is. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Here we are, uh, episode 20, studying together why it is, here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, why did America start losing wars around about 1960? Yeah, we understand why the sexual revolution started in 1960. We understand the collapse in educational standards, uh, we understand even a, an erosion of, uh, uh, of, of, of economic vitality. But why wars? And uh, the answer is that the way the good Lord set the world up, it's, it's very straightforward. And that is that uh, both human beings and societies depend on internal strength. That's just another word for spiritual strength. We need that. Uh, your business depends upon it. If enough people in your business stop believing in the future of the business, in other words, lose their faith, if enough people start believing that all that matters is the body and not the soul, then integrity vanishes, dishonesty grows, and uh, the days of the business are severely numbered. It's like that for a country as well. And what we've just been looking at is how courage is a spiritual attribute. And when people lose their spiritual attributes and people become um, more inclined to being materialistic, in other words, recognizing as true and real only those things that are physical, 
the, the easier it is, and in fact the more inevitable it is, for that culture to slide into a culture of cowardice. Because courage is a spiritual phenomenon. Now, I said that uh, we're going to take a look at ways in which it's even impacted crime. Well, yes, you see, what are the differences between people? After all, when you look at us, you know, we're all, you know, some of us are taller, some of us are shorter, some of us are fatter, some of us are thinner, but basically we're all the same. And what really distinguishes people? Let me put it this way. Uh, you could have two kinds of next-door neighbor. You could have a next-door neighbor who spends all his money on uh, drugs, alcohol, partying, um, a car. Basically, well, you get the picture, right? A consumer junkie. And meanwhile, he hasn't got money to have his lawn and garden taken care of. He hasn't got money to take care of maintenance. His roof has got moss growing on it. The, um, the, the walls all need paint. A window broken here. A fence drooping over there. You're the neighbor. And uh, you, you say to yourself, this is not good. This is undoubtedly lowering the value of my property. And what it li it's likely to do is since it's lowering the value of my property, it's very likely that on the other side of him, somebody like him is going to move in. And little by little, more people... But when I say like him, what am I talking about? Am I saying bald people? No. Am I saying people with yellow teeth? No. Am I saying fat people? No. Am I saying white people or yellow people or brown people? or No. I'm saying people who have bad spiritual awareness. There are people who see only the here and now, not the future, because that also is an aspect of a strong soul, of a spiritual part of your life that is adequately nurtured, because seeing the future is a spiritual quality. If you are somebody who is really a materialist, all you acknowledge is the physical part of life. Well, then all you care about is the here and now. And so maintaining your garden, growing, putting down fertilizer so that when the spring comes, you'll have a nice garden. That costs money now. It takes away from my party. And the promise, the payoff is down the road in the future. This is why it is that one of the best ways of measuring the spiritual state of an individual or a group or a neighborhood is by their net worth. Now, you've got to factor in their age, how long have they been earning, how much are they earning. But in the final analysis, what you're trying to measure is their tendency to save and invest versus their tendency to earn and burn. That's really what you're looking at. Why? Because it takes spiritual strength to say, I'm not going to spend money that I've got now in order to have a party today. I'm going to put it away for the betterment of tomorrow. That's real spiritual strength. And so if that's something you'd like your children to acquire the ability to do, there's no point in teaching them financial management if you haven't yet given them spiritual strength. It's crucial.
And so when you get right down to it, you know, what is, what is the characteristic of the neighbor you'd like? Do you want a neighbor of a certain color? Of course not. Do you want a neighbor of a certain gender? Do you want a neighbor of a certain body shape? No, of course not. You want a neighbor with strong Judeo-Christian spiritual values. <laughs> it's, it's very simple. Because that way, they are very unlikely to kick your kids, key your car, or kill your cat just because you annoyed them. They're very unlikely to do that. They're likely to maintain property values in the neighborhood. They're likely to be caring and compassionate neighbors. They're likely to participate in neighborhood and community events. All of those things come from spiritual strength. And so all you're looking for in a neighbor is a certain set of spiritual attributes, not physical attributes. And for the most part, as I've explained in the past, when you hire somebody to work in your company, again, for the most part, unless you're looking for a, a model, and uh, yes, you know, there are people who make a living as swimsuit models. As a matter of fact, uh, I myself endeavored to, uh, to secure such a position. I applied to several companies in order to become a swimsuit model, and, uh, and I, I've got to tell you, I was rejected. Uh, at each one, which just went to show me that anti-Semitism is alive and well in America today. Um, but there are people who do make a living successfully as swimsuit. By the way, those of you who have not seen pictures of me, I was kidding. But uh, people do. Now, that's an exception. If you're hiring somebody to be a, a swimsuit model, well, then you're only going to look at their body. But for most of us, we hire people for spiritual attributes their ability to communicate, their integrity, their resilience, their, uh, their effectiveness at projecting. All of these things are spiritual qualities, which is why we're making such a horrible mistake in excluding them from childhood education. We're meticulously avoiding teaching any spiritual reality. So once we've established, and I think I have, that the primary difference that distinguishes people from one another, the, the, the distinctions that really matter are spiritual. They're not physical. I don't care about physical distinctions. I mean, I'd like you to be healthy. I'd like you to take care of yourself. But um, I don't really care what your body type is or what your gender is or what your race is. I don't really care. But I do care about your set of spiritual values. I care greatly about those. Well, you see now that once people have eliminated the role of the spirit and they've eliminated the purpose of the soul, well, now all you're left with is the physical. And so if you've ever wondered why since 1960 we've been classifying people in America in terms of race and gender, it's because when you take away the spiritual, there's nothing left. That's all, that's all you've got left. And if you're wondering why the growing obsession with race and gender in America since 1960, well, that's because that was the point at which we began uh, removing the significance of the spirit. And what we're left with is nothing but the body. Today, when fierce fanatics and frenzied fiends threaten the foundations of Western civilization, what are we left with? We watch the Western news media 
turn intellectual cartwheels in their desperate desire to avoid identifying the religion of the people committing acts of terror because they dismiss the significance of religion. They've been doing that for decades already. And they simply cannot relate to the idea that what a person thinks about his God and what he thinks his God is telling him to do, that that can really sculpt the behavior and conduct of individuals out of the question. They can't deal with that at all. And so they're left with other attempts. So much so, by the way, that uh, I watched somebody being interviewed on French television and they were asking him if he could, he was in the theater in which so many people were brutally massacred by Muslim uh, thugs. And uh, they asked him, can you describe the person who you saw shooting? And he, he said, well, he was just sort of like a young guy because he couldn't bring himself to say Middle Eastern because he knew that that was just a, uh, a, a euphemism today for people who are unwilling to say Muslim. And so the result is that even police work is impacted by this uh, in terms of uh, crime these days. Have you noticed that, again, this is since 1960, when, um, when somebody uh, commits murders and the, the police arrive and there's shooting and the murderer himself is shot, they will say, five dead. And then you've got to read the article to see that it was four victims plus the murderer. Uh, they do this in Israel, and this is uh, at least foreign press. They don't do it in Israel, but uh, they in, in the West, when there's another terrorist incident in Israel, as there has been almost every single day, uh, the, uh, the news reports say four dead. Uh, one is uh, four, Israel four dead, three Israelis, one Palestinian. That's what they say. How disturbing is that? But what's really going on? What's really happening is an inability to distinguish spiritual differences between people. And if they simply cannot do that, if they're unwilling to identify that spiritual characteristics matter, then everyone is the same. And since religion is not a relevant or significant factor in people's behavior or in their lives, well, it just doesn't matter. People are people. This is why in, um, in that horribly frustrating Gulf War and in the equally frustrating ongoing Iraq War, uh, you will notice that people say, oh, there have been uh, 60, uh, 65,000 uh, uh, casualties, fatalities in the war. Well, I think that's okay for God to say, it might even be okay for the United Nations or the Red Cross. But for Americans to equate the death of those who are trying to kill you with the death of those who are, who are trying to defend you is a moral travesty. And it is the inevitable consequence of a group of people who have lost all spiritual sensitivity. Because at that point, the people who are trying to kill you and the people who are trying to defend you are exactly the same. Inability to distinguish is an inevitable consequence of taking away the spiritual side of life. But that isn't all. That isn't all. It actually 
gets even more profound. But I, I hope that on some level at least, I'm beginning to give you some ammunition for understanding why it is that when a country's spiritual condition declines, so does its military. Right? We've covered economics, but this is the first time we're talking about military. And I hope you see how the, um, the cowardice of the civilian leadership during the Vietnam War, the lack of willpower to inflict a decisive defeat upon the enemy, stems from the spread of the uh, culture of cowardice as an inevitable result of taking away the spiritual. The uh, book I've been talking about is called Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language, and I cover words like uh, shalom, peace. I cover words like table. Um, cover family-related words. I cover monetary-related words. And you're able to see how it is that in the Lord's language, like no other language, the words themselves reveal information that helps you live more successfully. That's why it's called Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. Go to the website at uh, www.youneedarabbi.com you need a rabbi.com and take a look at the book buried treasure be back with you in just a moment don't go away the blaze on demand this is rabbi daniel lapin america wk with your host andrew wk that is why they're so desperate that's why they're flailing and trying so hard with so much drama and emotion and nonsense because they have nothing else they're up against everything in the universe. It is, it, it, it's the very definition of utility. America WK, Saturdays, 10 a.m. to noon on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Well, here we are again in the final segment of the 20th podcast in the series on the blaze. I am your rabbi. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, your burning hunk of unstoppable charisma as we move forward in this podcast on the subject of why it is that we stopped winning wars just about the same time as the birth control pill was invented. Well, that, that particular link is one we've spoken about in earlier shows. But uh, what we certainly do need to uh, deal with now is that I've just explained why it is that as Judeo-Christian values evaporate from society and as spiritual reality is uh, extirpated from the culture, what results is cowardice. In other words, materialism validates cowardice. Materialism excuses cowardice. It's okay. We're not even going to call it cowardice. It's just watching out for your body at any spiritual risk at all because there is no such thing as a spiritual reality. And so if you, uh, you retain your life but at the loss of honor, if you retain your life at the loss of somebody else, none of these things matter. 
Because if there is no spiritual reality, then you are exactly the same as an animal. And for an animal, other than where it is built into certain species for survival purposes of the species, altruism on an individual level doesn't exist. Right? Uh, no dog can have the choice or has the choice to um, dive in front of a moving vehicle to push another dog out of the way. Right? It doesn't happen. It does happen among soldiers. It does happen among human beings. And I'm not talking here about parents who do anything to save their children, uh, because that could also be said to perhaps be a biological imperative. But I'm speaking about where strangers do good for other human beings. This is purely spiritual. And so take that away, and what happens? You have people who are essentially nothing but intelligent animals. No honor, no esprit de corps, no morality, nothing driving anybody other than the survival of the body, the happiness of the body, the joy and sensual pleasure of the body. That's all that really matters. But wait a moment. Wait a moment. You're saying that, uh, that the, the loss of spiritual reality welcomes in cowardice to the culture? Yes, that's exactly what I said. But wait a moment. How about extreme sports? There were no extreme sports before 1960, and now there are people who do very dangerous things. You know, bungee jumping off a bridge. Now, look, um, I understand it's, you know, it's not a lot of people die bungee jumping. They've, they've really tried to tighten it up. But I think you'll agree that more people die bungee jumping than playing chess. Skydiving, jumping out of a perfectly good airplane without a parachute, wingsuits. I mean, every few weeks there is somebody who dies in the mountains of the Alps in Europe and, and here in the United States um, by flying with a wingsuit. And they, they plunge horribly into a cliff. Uh, there are people who, um, uh, who um, what is the other? Well, there's mountain climbing, obviously, and uh, people people constantly die doing that. You can't call these people cowards by any stretch of the imagination, can you? How about base jumping? This is where people climb up onto the top of buildings and parachute off. They climb up at antennae. People die all the time doing this. They, they know they're doing something risky, and so how can you call them cowards? And the answer is that you're exactly right. They are willing to risk their lives, but only in meaningless pursuit. They're willing to risk their lives for nothing. And that's why they love the phrase, oh, he died doing what he loved. That's very different from saying he died for his country. He died defending his nation. He died defend, protecting his family. Those are all very different things. He died doing what he loved. Yeah, you're right. They are willing to risk death. Secularists are very often willing to risk death, but as long as it's for something utterly meaningless. That's all. In other words, for a thrill. And you just think about it. Just think about it. You know, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm totally immune to it. I'm not saying that uh, there isn't a part of me that, uh, that, that would probably enjoy that, that feeling of sheer adrenaline-pumping adrenaline terror, fear, and thrill all together 
as you're about to step out of an airplane into the noise and the wind and the slipstream, knowing that you're going to have 10 or 15 seconds of free fall before your parachute opens. Uh, look, I'm not seriously speaking. I'm not drawn to it. I'm, I don't want to do it. But I can, I can sort of understand the appeal. But I don't want to do it because the risk-reward ratio is just not good. It's much too high. You know, I don't mind doing things that are risky as long as if the downside isn't fatal. That's all. The fact is that uh, as long as we realize that the irreducible essence of a human being, that basic inextinguishable core of a human being is his soul, the part that was touched by the finger of God. Once we realize that, then we are capable of true courage, which means risking yourself for something honorable and worthy and good and pure and noble. But that's not what we're seeing in the culture now. That's not what we're seeing, what we're seeing at all. And so uh, the, 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 the additional thing that I have to um, uh, include in this podcast is the, um, the, the way we make judgments, the way we evaluate. Once again, if we're going to establish that only the physical matters and not the spiritual, well, then this would help explain why it was that, uh, again, following the 60s, America started not only going light on crime, but starting confusing the victim and the villain. Well, what's going on is that if there is no spiritual reality, then the most compelling guide to truth that you have is whatever is in front of your eyes at that moment. Because... Memory is a spirit, you know, it's being able to be moved by the past. That's a spiritual quality. Being able to be moved by the future is a spiritual quality. To feel sheer repugnance at the extinguishing of a life in utero can only be for somebody who can see in his or her mind's eye all the limitless potential of that human being who's only going to be born in six or seven months' time. But if you're a materialist, then you are overwhelmed by that which is in front of you in the here and now. And in the front of you here and now is a woman who doesn't want to have that baby. Obviously, she has the louder voice in your being because without a spiritual sensitivity of any kind it is almost impossible it's certainly very challenging to be able to see the life of that unborn child materialism the emphasis on the physical means you are excessively influenced by that which is right there in front of you and so why did we start going soft on crime when we became more and more of a materialistic culture? <laughs> it's obvious. Think about who's standing in front of you. You're the jury, you're the judge, and you see a, uh, this consciousness thug who's never heard the words thou shalt not, who's just murdered three 
innocent, defenseless people, but he's standing in front of you in a suit and a tie and a white shirt, and his attorney has told him to look downcast and serious, and you look at this person and you cannot bring yourself to execute him or to throw him into jail for the rest of his life. You can't do it because the voice of the victims has been silenced. That requires spiritual sensitivity. Since all you have is a physical worldview, things that are physically visible in front of you overwhelm the soft, quiet voice of the spiritual truth. And that's what happens. And so, generally speaking, emotional ties together with the physical. Intellectual ties with the spiritual. And so, if you wonder why there is the spread of compassion as the fundamental guide to morality, that would be part of it. Because real morality means that you're taking into account spiritual and physical. But if you're not doing that, then all you have is the physical, and that means all you're going to have is the compassion. And so what you have is all kinds of um, very well-intentioned. I'm not saying they're not well-intentioned, but these are well-intentioned synagogues and churches that are emphasizing their willingness to welcome refugees from Syria and from Somalia and from Iraq. Oh, bring them, bring them, bring them. Muslims by the score, by the hundreds, by the thousands. Why? Because we practice compassion. To which I say, well, are you bringing them into your homes and into your churches and your synagogues, or are you sending them somewhere else in America? And you know the answer to that as well as I do. And so I ask you, who told you to have more compassion for a Muslim refugee than for the Christian neighbor alongside whom he's going to be moved? He's going to be moved into a community, right? You're pushing for more Muslim refugees at this strange time in history where virtually every fanatic, fierce, frenzied fiend that wants to threaten Jews and Christians and the American way of life, almost every one of them is a Muslim, and you want to express your compassion by bringing them in. To which I say, what about your compassion for your fellow Americans? For one thing, your fellow Americans are going to have their taxes raised and raised and raised and their medical premiums raised and raised and raised so as to pay for all the immigrants getting the social services that they're going to be getting. Do you have no compassion for your fellow citizens? Why is your compassion only for the immigrants? Because you are a materialist. You have lost all spiritual sensitivity. And that means you can only feel, not think. And that means you feel for that which is in front of you, not for that which is invisible. Because to feel for that which is invisible requires a spiritual awareness. And your fellow citizens are not there in front of you. Right now, the pictures and images on your television screen show sad, unhappy, and certainly compassion-deserving immigrants 
but who deserves more compassion? At least let's weigh it up. And yet we're treated to this shameful sight of churches and synagogues saying, oh, we must bring the, uh, the, uh, the, the Muslim immigrants. We have compassion. Yes, you are materialists. You think there are no materialists in church? You think there are no materialists in synagogues? Tragically, I would have to say that a majority of people in synagogues around the country, in my estimation, are probably materialists, most likely. It's very serious. It's very problematic. But ladies and gentlemen, that is as far as we can go. But I hope I've given you at least a working approach so that if you are interested in further understanding the decline of America coinciding with its abolition of spiritual reality and its abandonment of Judeo-Christian biblical faith, you at least have a bit of a roadmap to follow along. Be sure to get yourself a copy of Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language, and uh, you can go over to my website and read about it in the store over there. It's rabbidaniellatin.com. Thank you all for being with me. Thanks for staying with us through the show. Greatly appreciated. Uh, do tell your friends, spread the word on the show, because to be honest, uh, it only makes sense for me to do if there is a wide listenership. And so let's try and build up the, uh, the listenership. You can even see yourself how popular it is getting. Let's spread that a little bit further, and, uh, and that will provide me with the encouragement and the motivation and, yes, the drive to record the show each and every week. Thanks for being with us. All that is left is for me to wish you a week of prosperity and good health. God bless. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network.